You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God in heaven, we pray that you would even send your spirit now to speak to us and that you would open uh, the eyes of our hearts, that we would not harden our hearts as in the day of the rebellion, uh, but would turn to you uh, and live. And so long as it is still today, that we would turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Uh, well, we get to Exodus 15, 16, and 17, uh, where the Israelites face three trials. Uh, if you want to categorize them, the first is uh, a test of disappointment. And that's when they're at Merah, and they find that the water that they drink is bitter. Uh, the second is uh, when uh, they are hungry and thirsty once again in chapter 16 and uh, 17. And you can say that that is a test of privation, uh, of scarcity. And then finally, uh, we have a test of conflict when Amalek uh, launches a, a military campaign against the people of Israel. And so this morning, I want us to look at these from a historical perspective, yes, uh, but also to see that it's our story as well. Remember, Exodus is God's picture book of redemption. Uh, it shows how God redeems his people, and it shows how God takes a people, makes them his own, and begins to shape them. And especially here in the desert, we find that God shapes people in a very particular way. And lest we think, oh, well, that happened so long ago and that has nothing to do with us. This is a real pivotal passage in the Bible in that it's referenced multiple times throughout the entirety of the scriptures. And so you can fast forward. You don't have to go there. Uh, but on some morning prayer Sundays, we sing this Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Do you know that? Uh, the Jubilate. But listen to verses, uh, ver the the tail end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So 500 years later, uh, what is the psalmist referring to? Exodus 15 through 17, right? Actually, Exodus 16 uh, and, and 17. And then uh, you fast forward another 500 years and you get to the epistle to the Hebrews and listen to what the epistle to the Hebrews says. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. He quotes uh, Psalm 95 and says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so if you think that this is some sort of outdated story, here we are reading these passages today, right? So here we are in 2021 reading from Hebrews, which points back to an event that to the psalm that happened 500 years before. And that psalm points back to an event that happened at least 500 years before that, right? God's word speaks today. And so we don't have the, the luxury. And frankly, it, it would be a terrible thing for us to say, well, that simply doesn't apply because the Bible holds up these three chapters as something that's important and that we need to learn. And so what is happening? Well, we know that the people of Israel are being tested. In the beginning of chapter 15, if you have your Bibles open, you see that there's a song of Moses. And then there's actually Miriam, uh, the sister, gets into the act as well. It's a big festival. And what are they celebrating? God's deliverance. Because what just happened? They pass through the Dead Sea onto dry land. Red Sea. So yeah, the Dead Sea would be basically rolled across that. They get to the Dead Sea eventually. Uh, but the Red Sea, thank you, David. Then, uh, so after they have this amazing festival to celebrate what God has done for them, they set out from the Red Sea and they were in the wilderness for how many days? Three three days since this mighty act of deliverance from God. And they come to a place in Merah. 
that they ended up calling Merah, which means bitter. And they found no water, but there in Merah, they find this water, but it is, it is bitter. And they grumble against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. And so here we have this sense of disappointment. You know, three days without... Now, look, we don't know that they were without water for three whole days. Uh, We don't know if they had canteens or whatever it is. But what we do know is that they didn't know where their next drink of water was going to come from in the sense of how are we going to refill our canteens? How are we going to fill our water barrels? And so when they finally come to a place that they call Mara, they find this water, but the water is bitter. It tastes terrible, so they're disappointed. Speaking of which, so they're disappointed, and they begin to grumble to Moses, and so God answers their prayer by taking this log and and tossing it in, and it makes the water sweet. Now, I want us, while we're looking at these three trials, especially this trial of disappointment, um, that... Uh, and, and also the second trial of privation, what our response is when, when we're tested. Um, I think that many of us have probably developed an attitude much like the Israelites, uh, because it's easy for us to sort of stand apart from this story and say, oh, you foolish Israelites, how could you do such a thing? Why couldn't you wait on the Lord? But we do this all the time. Uh, we often get to the point where we can only see what's wrong in our lives. Uh, We've lost sight of any positive past experience. I mean, three days ago, they walked through the Red Sea on dry land, and now they think, you've brought us out here to kill us. They've completely forgotten what God had done even three days ago. And you're incapable of seeing the good that is in front of you right now. I mean, that's one of the scary things because uh, once uh, they, uh, you see in verse 27, then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. If they had just held on for a little bit longer, they would have seen Elam. And that's often the case for us is that, is that, we think that Mara is the last word, when in fact Elam might just be around the corner. And we doubt whether or not God can do it. You know, um, this is often articulated in our lives uh, when we say things like, can I ever catch a break? When, when is life going to go my way? I mean, that's what the Israelites are saying, and that's what we say too. This always happens to me. That's one that I always like to say. We're, we're trying really hard in our family to never use the words always and or never unless it is about God. Right? Because, uh, you know, uh, this always happens to me. Does it really always happen to you? You know, my daughters, you never. Is that true? Uh, but we think it is. We think it is, or worse yet, with our spouses. But I love what Martin Luther would do. He said that every day he would rejoice that he woke up alive. Uh, and that's, uh, but when I first wake up, what am I thinking about? All the troubles that I'm going to encounter and wonder, God, when are you going to rescue me from? I, I take advantage, uh, take for granted rather, uh, the fact that I've even woken up alive and I've lost sight of objective reality of what's actually happening around me, much less what God is doing around me. And discouragement seems to be the default position of the Christian. It's certainly the default position of the Israelites. However, uh, God's providence. God is doing these things, why? To To make a people of his own, to develop them, that these testings happen in order for the people of Israel to see their need for God and to find their all in him. Uh, I was uh, listening to a sermon on this several years ago, 
And uh, Dick Lucas, uh, who was for decades the rector of St. Helens Bishopsgate, when he was a young curate at a church in Sevenoaks, which is in Surrey, England, he uh, was on a train going up into London, and he noticed uh, this person who had this enormous Bible on their lap. And, uh, and back in the day, uh, he, he, th- that was almost the definitive sign that that person was a missionary. And so he sat next to this missionary, and this is in the 1950s, uh, and he said, um, I'm Dick Lucas, I'm a curate at the church here in Seven Oaks." And the person said, well, I, I'm a former missionary to China. And of course, the missionaries were all being kicked out of China, and, uh, and Dick Lucas began to bemoan that to the missionary. And Dick said that he went on for several minutes talking about how awful it was and, and how damaging it was to the gospel witness. And, uh, and the missionary just looked at him and said, have you no faith in God? That it actually might be God's plan to save China that we be kicked out and that the communists might take control. Now there's confidence in God. And of course that missionary was not necessarily prophetic as much as he understood who God was. Because what's the most Christian nation in the world? China. Now that might not be obvious from an outsider's perspective, but there's no doubt that God has done a great work in China and he's used that adversity, that persecution, in order to bring many sons and daughters into glory. And so often what we do is we look at something that God is doing and he says it's good and we call it bad. Right? That's Good Friday, isn't it? Right? Objectively speaking, you're sitting at the foot of the cross and you're looking up at Jesus dying and you're saying, this is a bad day. But in fact, just when it seemed like God was as far away as he possibly could be, it turned out that's as near as God has ever come in reconciling the world to himself. The way that God usually advances his work is by defeat, not victory. Think about that. I mean, you look throughout Mark's gospel uh, and any of the gospels, uh, but you see that God's work is advanced through defeat. I mean, even in, the, in our own individual lives, I think that most of us can step back and say, well, yes, when you talk about the whole meta-narrative of God's redemptive work in the world, but what about your life? I mean, think about, think about Peter. Peter has just declared Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God in Philippi, Caesarea Philippi. And then Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'll be handed over to suffering and death. And on the third day, I'll be raised from the dead. And what does uh, Simon Peter say? No way. Surely not, Lord. And Jesus responds to him, get behind me, Satan. Right? That, that would be a serious setback spiritually for me to have the living God say, get behind me, Satan. Uh, but then what happens uh, after Jesus is handed over to suffering and death? Peter's outside the, the home of the high priest and he's warming his hands around a fire. And he's asked, yeah, you're one of Jesus' disciples. And he denies Jesus three times. But then that sets up uh, Peter uh, experiencing the risen Lord Jesus. And then that day where they've all gone fishing and Jesus is making a breakfast on the, on the seashore. And Peter jumps into the water and there they have that amazing conversation of Simon Peter, do you love me? And Peter's restored. And then this same defeated Simon Peter, who's now filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, is the one who's preaching in front of all of Jerusalem and is the one who stands in front of the Sanhedrin and says, this Jesus whom you crucified is now raised from the dead. And they say, stop preaching. And he says, can't do it. I won't do it. Well, I would say that those series of defeats, God used to make Peter into the man that he would be. Right? And that's true of us too. And of course, it's, it's not what any of us would, would long to go through. Nor, and of course, we'd all say, Lord, if there is a different way, that would have been great. But how many of us have been through the refiner's fire? 
And in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that test, uh, God has done a great work in our lives. And we've been brought to a point where we're falling on our knees and saying, God, you're all I have. You know, the doctors can only do so much. Uh, the loss that I'm experiencing in my life can never be replaced. Only you can fill that void. I, I have nowhere to turn. I'm completely, you know, the, the, the verse that stuck out in the song that we sang um, at, at the end of the service at 915, where it talks about the Messiah still in the tomb all alone. That the living God was all alone. Have you ever been alone or feel like you're the only one and that there's no one else in the world that is with you, much less for you? Jesus knows exactly how that feels. And Jesus is the one who brings you through it. And so here we see the story of our redemption in Exodus and how God makes a people for himself through trials. So let's look. So we've got Merah in the wilderness. If they had just head on, uh, held on till Elam, they would have seen uh, what God actually had in store for them. But all along, God supplies what they need. Now take note that at this point, they're grumbling against who? Moses. They're, uh, they're grumbling against Moses. Now, they should have known what to do. That the God who delivered them out of Egypt, remember, it's not just the Red Sea that we're doing, the Passover, uh, all of these other things that have happened where God saw them through it, uh, that what they should have done when they didn't have water is, you know what, let's gather together and let's pray and wait on God to provide for us, right? That's the faithful response. But instead, they go to their pastor and their political leader, Moses, and say, um, what, well, let's see what they said. What shall we drink? Meaning, it's up to you, pal. You brought us out here. You're responsible for bed and board. And so God does provide for them. And then he provides for them further at Elam. So already we see that they're a complaining group. So then chapter 16, they set out from Elam and the congregation of the people came to the wilderness of sin. Man, the chamber of commerce needs to work on that, uh, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month that they had departed from the land of Egypt. So how the fifth, just over two weeks, two weeks in a day. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. And now who? Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, What that we had died, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Now, it's very interesting in the um, Septuagint, which is the Latin translation of... Um, of the Old Testament, uh, do you know what the Greek word, I mean the Greek translation, do you know what the Greek word is here to kill this whole assembly with hunger? It's, this, it's the word for church. <laughs> You've, yes. So anytime you see assembly in the Old Testament, it's the word for church. All the Presbyterians are smiling because they know that they're, what's behind that. All right. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole church with hunger. All right, so they brought them out. So they're now complaining to Moses and Aaron, you've brought us out here in order to kill us. But let's be honest. Who does the complaint is, who is the complaint actually against? God. All the complaints go to the top. So when we say, why is my wife, why is my husband so terrible? Do you know what you're really saying? God, why have you stuck me with this person? When, they, when the Israelites are saying, I'm thirsty, what are they complaining about? God, you brought us out here to kill us. The complaints go all the way to the top. Now, that doesn't mean we, there's not a place for complaining. 
because sometimes that's how we have to get it out of our system. And isn't it nice sometimes to be able to say to somebody, I just need to vent for a minute. And so as they're walking along, I don't think that there's anything particularly wrong with the Israelites looking at one another and saying, look, I know it's foolish, but you know what I miss? Stew. I miss stew. I mean, look, I mean, was there a dish that your mom made growing up and you think, I miss that. I miss that. Or even, you know, one of the smells that I had is when they would mow the hay back home. Ah, that smell. And, 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 you know, I live in the city of Birmingham right now. Nobody's mowing hay. And, uh, and, and so, you know, there are times where I'll say to, to the girls, like, ah, I wish you could just smell that. And um, especially when they would cut the Timothy hay. See, obviously, it's, it's a thing for me. So, it, you know, there's nothing particularly wrong about that. But it's when you cross the line into saying, I have an inordinate desire for those things, that I would rather go back to Egypt where those things are, where God is not, than to be in the wilderness with God and not have the meat pots or the cucumbers. Now, uh, I will say this, that uh, grumbling, uh, which is, of course, ultimately complaining against God, I don't think that we take it seriously enough. So uh, one of the passages that we've referenced in, uh, in going through the book of Exodus is 1 Corinthians 10, because Paul is referencing back to this Exodus moment. Remember this, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock. We're going to see this in a little bit. That followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Why? Grumbling, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, just write this down, but I want, I want you to go back and see it, that, that Paul then talks, he says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And he gives three examples in which they desired evil more than God. The first one was idolatry. Verse seven, do not be idolaters. Now, most of us would shake our head and say, yes, we should not be idolaters. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality. We'd shake our head, yes. But then verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did. Paul, the Bible, the Holy Spirit puts grumbling in the same category as idolatry and sexual immorality. Now think about that for a minute. I mean, collar's getting a little tighter uh, in here. So this grumbling is, is something much more significant uh, that is related to sexual immorality and idolatry, which is saying God is not enough. It's faithlessness. That, that's really what it is. And that's why it's such a big deal. And of course, when we look at Psalm 95 and when we look at Hebrews, it's the grumbling that the psalmist is speaking of. And it's the grumbling that the author of Hebrews is talking about. It's a hardening of the heart, which is one of the most frightening things that can happen to us. You can taste the goodness of the Lord. You can be delivered from the Passover. You can walk through the Red Sea. And three days later, you start grumbling. And I think that one of the things that um, we need is for brothers and sisters, because we never know when our hearts are being hardened, right? We, we normally have a very hard time seeing that that's happening to us. What we need are brothers and sisters to say, your heart is being hardened. While it's still today, <laughs> repent and return to the Lord. Soften your heart to him. Don't close yourself off to him. And that's actually what I think would have been more effective pastorally. I wish, as we look through Exodus and beyond, that there would have been some record of the Israelites walking along together 
And when someone says, oh, the meat pots, oh, the cucumbers, so that somebody just looked at them and said, you know what, you don't really mean that. Think about that. Do you really want to go back to slavery in Egypt? Do you really think that that is better than, than where we are now? I, I know it's hard now, but, but at least we have God. And, and, and we can see there's the pillar of cloud. There's the pillar of fire. And did we not, were we not saved in the Passover? Did we not come uh, through the Red Sea? Do, remember, remember a couple days ago at Merah? where Moses chucked the log into the water and then all of a sudden, then, and then we had this nice club med experience at Elam and, and now we're complaining again. I mean, we need some perspective because let me tell you, Moses, no matter what he says, it's ineffective. And no matter what I say to y'all, it's going to be ineffective. What it's going to take are your fellow brothers and sisters coming alongside you and saying, don't harden your heart. You're grumbling. You're grumbling. But Andrew, yeah. Grumbling yes, it's contagious. It's contagious. Absolutely. Um, and uh, tell me more about that, Jane. <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. I, I, you know, I wonder if in some ways grumbling in Exodus is a generational sin because it was really the grumbling that, that God was trying to purge out of them. Um, so that when they did get to Jericho, only two people out of this huge nation, which numbered more than a million, uh, which they even remembered Israel, I mean, Egypt. So there was no comparison. Someone said, and said, oh, don't you miss the meat pots? Be like, meat pots? I've been eating man and quail. Uh, and then, of course, they too would say, I'm kind of sick of this. Uh, but, but as a generational sin, and you see that, I mean, don't y'all know families where you're just like, they are a grumbling family. They just are complainers. Uh, and I mean, I've heard it before. Like I, you, someone said, you know, so-and-so, they come by it honestly. Their mother was a complainer and their grandfather was a complainer. And, uh, and that is, is not where we want to be. Uh, because constantly God is saying, uh, I am faithful to you. And what God is trying to do is to build trust up in the people of Israel. That's what he's trying to develop. And that trust is manifested in obedience. Faith and obedience. And for us, that's hard too. Because won't we read something in scripture and say, yeah, God, you said it. But that's not really the way that it works in this world. The world doesn't function that way, God. And so even though I know that you've said it and you're calling me to this, I don't think that I can live and abide by that. Remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread just a couple chapters ago? That what God was trying to prompt from the voices of children is for the child to go up to their mother and father and say, Mama, Daddy, why do we do this? Why are we different? And there is a godly provocation for our children that the way that we live in this world would prompt our children to ask, why are we different? Why are we different? Now, somebody in the congregation was very generous because uh, I talked about how I don't buy my children things uh, in the grocery store line uh, because we'd rather spend it on ministry. Uh, and someone gave me a little bit of money and said, for heaven's sake, buy your children gummy bears uh, in, in the line at, at the grocery store. And, um, but I gave the money to missionaries. So, um, but, but that our lives are, are provocative, especially uh, to those who don't understand and in the world. And so all of the new Old Testament laws that we're going to come to um, are, are there to set themselves apart from the rest of the world to say, uh, we're different. And why are we following these commands to not wear cotton blend shirts? Uh, because God said so. And our response to the God who has redeemed us is to be faithful and obedient. And when we're disobedient, to repent and return to him. Because we find in him is life, right? Right. Jesus said, I have come into the world that you might have life 
and life abundantly, or better translated, life and life to the full. If you want to exhaust life of its potential, know Jesus. Which, of course, is different from what the world says. The world says, if you're a Christian, that means you're going to live a diminished life. If you live your life outside of Jesus Christ, your life is going to be an unending quest to satisfy your thirst and hunger spiritually that will never be satisfied. You'll never know peace. Because whether you're a Christian or not, we all end up in the wilderness. We all end up in the wilderness. And I think that most of us, if we look back on our life, would say most of our lives are spent in the wilderness. You know, Elam is just a blip. And we enjoyed it while it was there, but but we have to keep moving forward. And often it's, it's not Elam, more often than not, it's, it's privation, it's disappointment, it's conflict. And yet there is God delivering them all the way. And they're grumbling here in chapter 16 when they're talking about meat pots and ate bread to the full. And you've brought us out in this wilderness to kill the whole church with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And so God provides this manna from heaven. And one of our Latin preachers, I think it was Ken Jones or maybe Jacob Smith. Yeah, Jacob Smith. Manna is a um, is derived from the Hebrew for what is it? That's actually what it means. What is it? <laughs> uh, because we don't exactly know what it is. And so God has provided, what is it? Um, uh, and that's kind of good because it, it wasn't really recognizable, uh, this sort of hoarfrost uh, that has been uh, provided. And I know that there have been scientific explanations uh, for it, but at a, at a very base level, it's provided by God. Gummy bears. Yeah, it's gummy bears, if you, if you will. Uh, gosh, wouldn't that be, you know, be careful what you ask for. A life of eating 40 years of gummy bears. Oh, they'd have the strongest joints on the face of the earth. But, but of course, even, even in the providing of manna, God stipulates uh, two things. Uh, it's going to happen every single day, right? And every morning you're to wake up and you're to gather it up. But how much are you to gather one day's worth. On Friday morning, you gather two days worth in order to honor the Sabbath, right? But what happens if you try to gather up more than a day's worth? It'll rot. It, it, it rots. It rots. Now, why would God give these commands? Dependence upon him. That ever, give us this day our daily bread. Have y'all thought about that when you pray the Lord's Prayer? Give us today our daily bread. Lord, I'm trusting in you to provide. Now, most of us have never had to deal with the issue of hunger and probably didn't even give a second thought about having daily bread provided for us. But that's really what Jesus is saying in the Lord's Prayer. Give us today what we need to survive. That's a total dependence upon God. So waking up in the morning like Luther and saying, God, I thank you that I'm still alive. I'm going to, to trust you for my everything today. And even though we might not need to rely upon him uh, for our bread, how is it that in this age of consumption and abundance that, that we find our reliance on God? No, I think that for us, it, it's more spiritual. And by that, I mean getting in touch with ourselves and seeing our need for Jesus. And even seeing, and, and I, I find that most of the problems that I deal with in a material way and in a worldly fashion are not the result of poverty, but abundance. I mean, for, for those of us who started off life out of school and had to get a job and work. I mean, some of y'all might remember those days when you were making a pittance. Uh, you were just not making anything and, and you were just trying to make ends meet and, and you wonder how in the world I'm gonna survive. And, you're gonna th and you think, if I just made a little bit more money, everything would be fine. And fast forward 20 years, 
40 years, and you're making a whole lot more money, but you think, I'd kill to have those problems when I was 20. You know, you almost look back at them with fondness, right? In the words of the uh, rap artist prophet, mo money, mo problems. So, uh, so maybe for us, it's, it's getting in touch with the problems that we have due to our abundance that ought to drive us to God. So bread from heaven uh, comes along and, um, and that is uh, all well and good, but not just bread. In the evening, verse 13, chapter 16, in the evening quail came up and covered the camp. In the morning dew lay around the camp. Uh, and there is um, the, the quail and the bread, and that is how God fed them. So remember, what were the two things they complained about? Water, right? We got water, three things. Water, meat pots, and bread. And what has God provided for them? All three. All three. And so they are continuing on. Um, and even though God has provided for them, verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they could find none. Now, um, they continue on, and, um, and actually as they continue on, um, it's not that much longer um, where they get to uh, Rephidim and there's no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Now, now we've got an es escalation and, and aggression, right? It's, it's now quarreling. And of course, who they're quarreling with is God. Give us water to drink. And Moses says to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and people... See, I mean, that's the thing is that they want to test God when God is trying to test them. It's a role reversal. They think that they're on the throne and God ought to do something for them. And I wonder if they don't think, well, we're God's chosen people. And rather than resting in that knowledge and knowing, therefore, God is going to provide for us, they think, well, because we are, he ought to. He's obligated to us. And remember that great scene in the Gospels where people say we have Abraham as our father, the Jews in Jesus' day. And Jesus says, I tell you, I can make these rocks into sons of Abraham, right? It, you, you know, it's not just genetic. It's, it's you come to God by faith, which is what he's trying to instill in these people. And so he leads them here and there he strikes uh, the rock and out of it comes water. And uh, as this water comes out, uh, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10, that the rock is Christ, right? So this picture book that we're seeing, we're seeing uh, manna from heaven. So uh, the wilderness where they are is not like Lawrence of Arabia dune desert. So if that's the image you have in your mind, cast it out. They do get there. But it's just this arid, scrubby, seemingly lifeless place and its hills and things like that. It is not unlike uh, the scene where Jesus has gone across the Sea of Galilee and he's there on the eastern shore and uh, they're too far away from anything and Jesus' disciples, Philip and Andrew, say, we've got these people out here, what are we going to do with them? And Jesus says, give them something to eat. And then he makes them sit down there in the middle of the wilderness and he feeds them, right? He, he, he feeds them, right? This is, this is an exact parallel uh, that Jesus is the one that's able to take his people in the wilderness and, and to, to feed him. But like the people in the wilderness, remember, this is one of the big differences, is that after they'd gathered up uh, the leftovers, there were about five basketful of leftovers, and then Jesus and the disciples uh, uh, got into the boat and, and, um, and came across. And remember, well, there's the walking on the water bit. But then when they get across the other side, the people followed Jesus around. And this is in John's gospel. And when they got to the other side, uh, Jesus says, what about them? Why have they followed him? 
the leftovers. They saw that they had leftovers and they were thinking, even though they'd seen this great miracle, they were thinking about their bellies. They weren't thinking about Jesus. They weren't chasing after him. They were chasing after what Jesus could do for them. And the Israelites are in very much the same boat. They care about the manna. They care about the quail. But even that's going to get old after a while. And so God is giving them these pictures of Moses uh, striking uh, the rock. And uh, verse uh, chapter 17, verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah. Remember, that's... That's Psalm 95, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Man, isn't that a question? To ask, are you really there or not? Because if you were, you'd do what I'm telling you to do. They're just bad children. Um, I mean, they really, but of course, we're, we're no different. And so they were tested in a way that led to disappointment, tested uh, through privation, and then finally uh, tested by conflict when they meet Amalek. Now, if you remember much earlier on, when they were going out of Egypt, God directed them to go one way instead of the other. And do you remember the other way that they should have probably gone because it was shorter, but God said, we're not going to go this way? Up through Gaza. The, the coastal road that's been there for thousands and thousands of years, it's still there. Um, and why does anyone remember? Did God not send them that way? Who lived there? The Philistines. Yeah, the Philistines were there. And God said, if you run up into the Philistines, they will attack you. And we know from our Bible reading that there are warring people. Uh, that's where Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. And so uh, he turns them south uh, down toward the Red Sea. Uh, so... That was a bad time uh, to bring them into conflict. But now they run into Amalek. And Amalek came and fought with Israel. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. The staff that, that parted the Red Sea. The staff that turned to a snake and then swallowed up the others. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Okay. So here uh, we have uh, God bringing his people uh, through this battle. And, and they weren't battle-tested. Remember, they'd been in slavery for generations and generations, so they weren't exactly, um, <clears throat> excuse me, trained and ready to go. And yet Joshua is conscripted to lead the army into battle, and he chooses who he thinks is the best that can actually fight. Excuse me, and off they go. Uh, but Moses and Aaron and Hur go up on the hilltop, and there Moses holds up his arms in the midst of the battle. When they're up, they're winning. When they're down, they're losing. And so they sit him down, and Aaron and Hur hold up his arms in the midst of the battle. Now, I think that God was doing this because God, the battle belongs to the Lord. But I think God also wanted the people of Israel to be able to see an act of faithfulness on the part of his people. Not just Moses raising his hands up in a posture of prayer and blessing, but to have two men come alongside him and hold up his arms. And God is saying, I know you're tired. I know you're weary. I know you're in the wilderness. But I'm fighting the battle for you. And I'm going to send men and women into your life to hold up your arms when you can't hold them up anymore. Uh, the, not just faithfulness to God, but faithfulness to one another amongst the assembly. 
amongst the church. That we are coming alongside one another and not just saying, you're grumbling. Because, I mean, if that's all that marks the life of our congregation, is everybody calling one another out where we're slipping. I mean, I'm going to give everybody a badge and y'all can be the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department. And y'all can just go, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? I mean, I had a family member who I loved dearly who were, they were the grammar police. And they were right, but I didn't like them. I didn't like them. And in fact, one, uh, when I was speaking to them one time, they used improper grammar and I was all over it. It was so sweet and love. That's not the way it ought to be. Uh, so it's not just coming alongside and saying, brother, sister, you're grumbling. It's also coming alongside. And I, I love the way that, that God tells us uh, here. It said, so they took a stone and put it under him. They didn't wait for Moses to say, hey, can you get me a chair? Hey, do you mind if you don't, can you hold my, they just did it. They didn't, they didn't wait to be asked. They just came alongside and they said, Moses needs to sit down and he needs somebody to raise up his arms. And that's us. And that's us. And so certainly we need people to come into our lives to, to check our hardening hearts and to say, soften, soften. Be receptive to what God is saying and doing in your life right now. But also to say, as your heart is hardening, I'm here for you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to hold your arms up in the midst of the battle. I'm going to, um, uh, I'm going to give you some place to, to sit. And so um, we have these three tests, disappointment, privation, and conflict. And there God shows his faithfulness uh, to the people of Israel. And he's using these events to shape them spiritually. Uh, into a people that long only for him and, and seek to love him and obey him and see God as uh, their everything. And, um, and so he's developing in them uh, a trustfulness uh, and an obedience uh, that ultimately uh, will lead uh, to life uh, for them in the wilderness and from generation to generation. But God is faithful through it all. Okay, questions, comments, concerns? Clark. Hmm. After the Israelites had complained, God responded with water and a quail. If they had not complained, right. Would God have done it anyway? Yeah. Yeah, if, if if God, if, if the people had not complained, would God have provided? Yes. And I think that we see it in the passage in chapter uh, 15, where Elam was going to come up providentially. Like that was going to happen where they would have um, water. And, and, and typically in the Middle East, uh, palm trees are date palms. And so I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that they were able to enjoy dates uh, while they were in Elam. So yes, and, and because you are in the wilderness, the only really way to get food is if God is going to provide it for them. So yes, I think that God would have uh, provided it uh, for them, but they just, um, they just weren't willing to wait on the Lord, which is, which is true for all of us. Yeah, Victor. Of if they hadn't grumbled, they wouldn't be there. Yeah, because they cried out to the Lord. Is that what you mean, Victor? Oh, well, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. In the first, yes. Um, and uh, the grumbling is really what kept them in the debt. So, if you were to get out a magic marker and a map, it's it's disastrous where they go and how they go, and it just takes a whole. Years and years and years uh, longer to get to where they're going. But the whole point of the 40 years was to make a people for himself. It took 40 years. Because remember, this is the beginning. This is the start. It took 40 years to get them to a place spiritually where they were able to cross into the land that God promised them. And so it's a long work. 
and we kind of expect it to be done. Um, uh, someone asked, uh, uh, I, was, I was watching an interview with Peter O'Toole, uh, who you know, uh, and Peter O'Toole was asked what he wanted uh, on his tombstone, his epitaph, and he said, oh, I've known that for years, and he said uh, he received back years ago a, uh, a piece of dry cleaning, and on the dry cleaning was pinned a note. Um, it, it says, it grieves us greatly to return this article in its unsatisfactory state. Um, and, uh, and, and so that, that is what's on Peter O'Toole's um, uh, headstone. Uh, and, and so it took 40 years for God to get, and even then, I mean, y'all can read about that later when they cross into, they're, they're, the same problems exist. So even when everybody gives God a hard time about, when God says, when you go into the city, you have to annihilate everything. That's not so much a judgment against the Canaanites, although it was, because the Canaanites, were not, they sacrificed their children to Moloch. So I mean, we're not talking about these, well, they were deep down inside, they were nice. Um, but it was almost always a judgment against the Israelites because God knew that if they commingled with anybody else, the Israelites would be corrupted because they were so weak spiritually. Um, so even when they cross over the Jordan into Jericho and they have the Canaanite campaign, some of the same issues come up even amongst those that had come through the wilderness for 40 years. Okay. Yes, and Alec. early on, you referred to Good Friday and talked about Bad Friday, but not the second one, but one time, a long time ago, was Good Friday not known as God's Friday? Yeah, I think, yeah, you know, that, that's actually, I'd have to look at that, whether or not it's a corruption of, of God's Friday. But I, I, I think that it's always been known as good. Clark, do you know? I, I think that it's always been known as good. Um, you know, there have been corruptions of like, Christmas, Christ Mass, um, but I'm pretty sure it's been it's been good. Well, I know that we're at an, at the end, so go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at AdventBirmingham.org.